Thank you for remaining standing as we now turn our attention to the reading and hearing of God's Word. If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and read along with me. Our text this morning is from verses 20 through 22, but in order to capture a bit more of the context, I'll start reading this morning at verse 12. So follow along with me, if you will. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now if Christ is preached that he had been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our glorious Father in heaven, what great hope and what great conviction and what great and profound truths we find in your word. As we come to the preaching of your word this day, we humbly ask for the help of your Holy Spirit. So often we come weary in body and mind and we struggle to engage our thoughts and hearts fully. Help the preacher to speak with clarity and simplicity. Where there are mistakes in, in the notes and in my thoughts, grant the wherewithal to make corrections along the way. Help those who listen to hear with understanding and to listen attentively. And by that wonderful work of the Holy Spirit, apply spiritual truth to our hearts so that we may be strengthened in hope, a hope that does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. Make us to know with absolute certainty the hope of eternal life, which you, O God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. This we earnestly pray for the sake of your Son, Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, and in whom we have the hope of eternal glory. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> As I seek this morning to conclude this short exploration of the doctrine of our union with Christ, it feels, it feels as if we have arrived not at an end of the exposition, but rather only at the end of the introduction. Union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole of the doctrine of salvation, not only in the application of redemption, but also in its 
once-for-all accomplishment of the finished work of Christ. I opened this short series with an introduction to union with Christ, focusing on how it is central to our identity as Christians. Apart from this union and communion with Christ, we can have no claim to the hope of heaven, the hope of glory. We can have no access to the glories of Christ. Apart from being in Him, we cannot share in His saving benefits. But the very instant we put our faith in Jesus Christ, the Spirit draws us into Christ and Christ into us, and we partake in every spiritual blessing. We then took some time to see that from the beginning, and even before the very beginning of time, all the way to the unbounded reach of eschatological eternity, we find various aspects of our union with Christ and that we were indeed chosen in Christ. Next, we followed our union with Christ through the first chapters, seven chapters of Romans using a courtroom analogy. First, hearing from the prosecution, then the defense, and finally receiving counsel from the judge following the not guilty verdict, ultimately concluding in chapter 8, verse 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And last week, we walked through 1 John, identifying eight objective tests in which those who are in Christ may find the comfort we all seek in knowing that we can truly know the assurance of salvation, knowing that we truly belong to Christ if we are in Him. And so this morning we will conclude this overly brief survey noting not only do we find our identity in Christ, and not only does our new life have its inception in Christ, and we will therefore find our liberty from guilt and condemnation in Christ, and even knowing comforting assurance in Christ but that by virtue of that same relationship to Christ, the life we now live is one of fellowship in Jesus' resurrection. It is in Christ that we are born anew to a living hope, walk in newness of life, and at the appointed day these earthly bodies will die in Christ, awaiting His second coming and the final resurrection and glorification of our bodies. In Christ, we will be made alive with the last last trumpet sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible. Glorification with Christ at His coming will be but the beginning of a consummation that will encompass eternity. This is a perspective with both a past and a future And neither of these is bounded by what what we know in this temporal history in which we live. In this context of eternity, past and future, which is so bound up and so surely joined with Christ, we find that we have been been given a blessed life, a life to live of faith with the hope of glory. So how is it that we can even entertain the thought of what lies beyond this earthly life with such joy. 
Why are we able to know long-suffering and joy in the very midst of the perplexities and adversities of this present life? How can we have confident assurance with reference to the future such that even now there truly is a hope of glory? It is because we cannot think of the past, the present, or the future apart from our union with Christ. Apart from union with Christ, we cannot view past, present, or future with anything but dismay and Christless dread. Without Christ, we are aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise and have no hope and are without God in the world. But by union with Christ, our whole perspective of time and eternity is changed. It is transformed into that which more closely images reality, a deeper reality, and therefore as the people of God, we may rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. This is the life and the perspective that we are called to. And since we are called to believe these things and to walk in the light of these truths, we must therefore exercise faith and grow in the knowledge and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to exercise a childlike faith and put off the vain philosophies of the world and tear down the idols in our lives. We need to root out any vestige of syncretism that has been brought into our beliefs, the false teachings of gurus regarding how we should pursue the good life or find hope in anything but Christ Jesus. Christianity doesn't present the illusion of life it doesn't taunt its followers with false hope. Our faith in Christ offers life itself. Life to the fullest. And it does so only through our union with Jesus Christ, the ever-living Lord. In fact, life is the ultimate blessing of union with Christ. Our attaining and experiencing the full measure of life, what we know as glorification is the end goal of our being united to Christ. As John Murray writes, it is the completion of the whole process of redemption. So I want you to see this. I want you to sense this. I want you to know that in Christ and only in Christ are you really and truly alive. And that is how we find ourselves in the middle of the 15th chapter of Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. In so many ways, this is a most profound chapter. At its core, this chapter is a defense of the resurrection of Christ and thus the hope of our salvation. But in the process of defending the truth of the resurrection of Christ, the Holy Spirit through Paul gives us so much more this is a chapter that is just filled with doctrine after doctrine and is a great aid to our understanding. In this chapter, we find a brief def definition and declaration of the gospel, an historical account of Christ's death and resurrection, a defense of Paul's apostolic calling, a succinct summary of federal headship theology, a sure defense of the historic Adam, and by implication, a defense of six-day creation. 
We find an introduction into eschatological hope. We see the lordship and the victorious reign of Christ. We see the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. And if that weren't enough, there's even some difficult verses sprinkled in for good measure, verses that have been twisted through the ages to promote false teaching. There is so much here. It has been difficult, I confess, to focus the message. From the text I read at the opening of this message, we see Paul began his defense of the resurrection of Christ. And he does so, and this is where we take note, he does so by assuming the position of his opponents who say there is no resurrection. We know Paul. We know he's a great teacher, and he's a great logician. And so he presents two syllogisms, two logical if-then statements that would affirm the position of his opponents if they were proved to be true. And the first one we find in verse 13. And we could restate this. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been resurrected. Resurrections do not happen. Therefore, Christ has not been resurrected. And there's a second one we find in verse 14, which is, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Christ has not been raised, which is the conclusion his opponents held. Therefore, our preaching and your faith is in vain. But this is where it gets interesting. Following the logical conclusion of those who deny the resurrection, Paul lays it all on the line. In verses 15 through 19, he goes all in writing, Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Paul here lays it all out there, on the line. His faith, his ministry, the veracity of Christ's revelation, his apostolic calling, and any hope that we might have in Christ. If Christ is not risen, all is lost. And this brings us to the central turning point point of this passage, the turning point that we are focusing on this morning. But now, Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. By declaring Christ is risen from the dead, he is hearkening back to the gospel testimony he begins at the opening of chapter 15. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, and after that He was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present." but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. 
Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. By the testimony of 12 apostles and over 500 witnesses and even his own personal witness, Paul confidently and definitively affirms the bodily resurrection of Christ. And in so doing, he overturns the previous syllogisms of the resurrection deniers and demonstrates their false premise that there is no resurrection, which topples the whole thing like a house of cards. And so he can declare, in Christ, in Christ, all shall be made alive. This is the central theme the central theme to the whole of redemptive history. In Adam, our natural representative, there is only sin, condemnation, and death. But in Christ, our new representative, there is righteousness, justification, and life. We could then ask the question, if you do not believe in a literal Adam, why did Jesus need to die for our sins? But we do believe in the truth and inerrancy of Scripture, and so we also believe in the historicity of Adam. Therefore, we need Jesus. We need Him to be our new head. We need Him so that we can all know that in Christ all shall be made alive. And for the remainder of this message, I would like for us to focus on three ways in which those who are in Christ shall be made alive at three points in the life of the Christian. We are made alive in Christ first at regeneration, and second at death, and third at His second coming. So first, we are alive in Christ at regeneration. One of the ways we know that God's promise of eternal life isn't a lie and therefore our faith is not in vain is because God gives us a taste of that eternal life in the here and in the now. The first experience Christians have of being alive in Christ, the first genuine hope they are given that death cannot defeat them is in regeneration. Regeneration or conversion is the start of the Christian's eternal life. We see this in the name itself since regeneration means new birth or new life. Scripture speaks of this in multiple places. It is is there in the instruction Jesus gives to a questioning Nicodemus regarding the kingdom of heaven. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We need to be born again or born spiritually, because being born naturally is tantamount to death. For as in Adam all die, our text informs us, we are dead in trespasses and sin, and by nature children of wrath, according to Ephesians 2. This spiritual death that marks us from birth renders us completely unable to do anything to change our predicament. You can't tell a dead person to live This is why the Christian life starts with regeneration. It doesn't start with us putting our faith in Jesus or with us repenting of our sins. And let me state that again. The Christian life starts with regeneration, not by putting our faith in Jesus or in the repenting of our sins first. 
we have faith and we repent precisely because we have been brought to life through the power of God by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Peter opens his first epistle by launching into doxology for this wonderful work. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter is saying that in God's mercy we have been born again to experience the living hope that comes from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, God brings us to life in regeneration to experience the hope of life to come, which is all guaranteed to us because Jesus lives. That is, He has been resurrected. It is all of life, and it is all a work of God. We do not bring ourselves into this glorious estate. Rather, He has caused us to be born again to experience and enjoy this life that is ours in Christ. And notice how Paul emphasizes the work of God in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God has made us alive together with Christ. We are enabled to experience the life of the very Son of God that He experiences, a life that is full and free and that this world cannot contain. And so we are, spiritually speaking, seated with Christ in the heavenlies even now. This new life, this regenerated self, is referred to elsewhere in Scripture as having a new heart. And this makes sense that since, since the heart is in many ways the sum of our personal ex existence. We need this new spirit-filled heart pumping life into us. Again, we must see this as the work of God and that what He does for us to bring us to Him, not something we need to do. Ezekiel 36 is that wonderful passage that shows us that it is God who is the executor of this work. I will give you a new heart, says God, and put a new spirit within you. I will take that stony heart out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. When we have this new spirit-filled heart, we begin to live in new ways. We're able to walk in the statutes of the Lord and obey His rules. Sin no longer has dominion over us. And that is a sign that there is life in us. Because sin belongs to the realm of death and decay, anytime we choose obedience over sin, it is proof that we indeed have life. Moses makes the connection between obedience to God's law and life in Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 through 19 when he preaches to Israel these words. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways and to keep His commandments, His statutes and His judgments, that you may live 
and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away, so that you do not hear and are drawn away, and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. Then a little bit later, therefore, choose life. And Christ gives us a down payment of eternal life here and now through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. His presence is proof to us declaring, there's more. The best is yet to come. And that is essentially what Paul says in Ephesians 2.7. In the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We are alive in Christ now, but we have more life to experience in Him in the future. And so we get to that, when do we get to that greater and richer life experience? Well, paradoxically, it's, it's at death. Our second point is that we are alive in Christ at death. It is at death that we enter into everlasting life, into heaven and the presence of God. This is unfathomably greater than the life we experience now. Faith becomes sight, and prayer turns into praise. Richard Baxter explains this promotion succinctly, writing, Rebirth brings us into the kingdom of grace. Death brings us into the kingdom of glory. What so many people fear, the Christian can face with boldness and even hopeful anticipation, all because our union with Christ. He has defeated death. We need not fear. And the doctrine of union with Christ is never more practical than when the Christian is lying on his or her deathbed. Question 37 of the Catechism asks, What benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? Answer, The souls of believers, believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory and their bodies being still united to Christ do rest in their graves till the resurrection. This answer points us to two scriptural truths that are revealed about what happens to the believer at death. The first is that the remnant of sin is completely eradicated. The inward holy warfare against sin is done forever, and the soul is made perfect in holiness. It is completely and totally consecrated to God. All defects are perfected. And all impurities are made pure. This, the second is a consequence of the first. Now, now that we are entirely holy, without spot or stain, without sin, we, we then change our location. We enter into the very presence of God. Hebrews 12, 14 says that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Yet, once we are made holy, we enter into the Holy of Holies. At death, we come into the presence of Almighty God in Christ Jesus. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, 
we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And please notice that this happens immediately. And this too is good news. Immediately is something we don't often experience in this life, even though it's something we most always want in this life. All of us probably have a story of wanting or even needing help immediately, but instead we've been forced to wait. Perhaps stories of the emergency room in a hospital or in a doctor's office comes to mind. And if death is our time of greatest need, our moment of crisis, where is the help we need? The Christian doesn't have to wonder or wait. We pass immediately into the presence of our Savior in glory. He is with us every step of the way. There is no waiting room and there is no agonizing in the unknown. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Note what the psalmist writes. Why do we not fear death? Because God is with us. Even death cannot sever our union with Jesus Christ. He is with us to death, through death, and He greets us instantaneously after death. And only then, as we open our eyes in glory, will we look and see that He has been with us the entire time. This is the hope of heaven. It is to be with Jesus in His presence with no mediation. It is to be right there with Him face to face. So many well-meaning Christians have extended the hope of heaven to the unbeliever as a means to wooing them to the gospel, when in reality, they are drawing them to the wrong thing. Heaven is not the goal. It is not the end. Jesus is the goal and the end. Samuel Rutherford was right to say that if Jesus wasn't in heaven, he would not want to go there. Jesus is the Christian's hope, and at death, he is there immediately. And as an aside, I couldn't help but note this great theme of coming into the presence of the Lord at death being so evident, even in the songs that we sang or will sing throughout this liturgy this morning. And I had no hand in choosing them. Just a few verses from some of these. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. We sang that, remember? When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fear subside. Death of death and hell's destruction, land me safe on Canaan's side. Songs of praises, songs of praises I will ever give to thee. In Psalm 41, And as for me in uprightness, thou dost uphold me well, and sets my feet before thy face forevermore to dwell. And even on Christ the solid rock, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, in him my righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne and man of sorrows. When he comes, our glorious king, to his kingdom us to bring, then anew this song will sing, hallelujah, what a savior. These are such wonderful truths. They're, we find them in our hymns in our psalms. Wonderful truths. 
Dwight Moody knew this truth, and he owned it in such a way that he is quoted as saying, Someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. What a glorious and comforting truth we find in God's Word, seeing that even in death, we are alive in Christ. And so as we come to the third point, we might be wondering, what could be more wonderful than being absent from this broken and failing body, daily caught up in the battle with sin, than to be made holy and brought into the presence of the Lord. Does it really get any better than that? Well, actually it does. Heaven isn't the full extent of our experience of life. It is not the last stop in salvation. Glorification is indeed the end-all, be-all of being saved, but glorification doesn't take place fully when we first enter into glory. Glorification is consummated when Jesus returns. We are made alive in Christ at His second coming in an even better way. So while our life begins now with regeneration and is enlarged and enhanced at death, we see at the last that the fullest expression of life really happens at the second coming. God has made us both physical and spiritual creatures. Contrary to Gnostic notions that see all matter and anything physical as inherently evil, our physicality is part of God's good creation. We are both soul and body, and for us to think that we have reached the culmination of salvation or the highest peak of life when only our souls have been perfected is to think too low of God's good intentions. This is what John Murray is getting at when he writes, Glorification has in view the destruction of death itself. It is to dishonor Christ and to undermine the nature of the Christian hope to substitute the blessedness upon which the believer enters at death for the glory that is to be revealed when this corruptible will put on incorruption and this mortal will put on immortality, end quote. In the catechism question and answer I mentioned earlier, we saw two things that change at death. Our sinful condition is eradicated and the presence of God becomes our home. But there was also one thing that didn't change, and that is our union in Christ. Our bodies being still united to Christ do rest in their graves till the resurrection. Again, even something as seemingly destructive as death can never undo our union with Christ. That is why Paul refers to the dead in Christ in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, even after we have breathed our last, Christ will cling to our cold corpse, promising one day to transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body. Philippians 3.21 That is complete glorification. That is life to its fullest. And it happens when Jesus comes again. Anything less is not the full measure of hope that the gospel extends to us. In John chapter 5, we read, For as the Father has given life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself and has given Him authority to ex execute judgment also because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear His voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life 
and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Scripture tells us that at the return of Christ, we will be made like Him. We will have put on the imperishable of the new creation. Why? Because He will have returned and manifested who He really is to us. We will see Him. And 1 John 3, 2 says, We will know that when He is revealed, that is, when He comes again, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. In other words, we will become like what we behold. Furthermore, we know that this is the fullest manifestation of life because it extends beyond those in Christ to the totality of the created order. The entire world which is imprisoned in sin and death will be given new life on that day, made into a realm fitting for our glorified bodies. The creation is waiting for us to receive this resurrection life because it knows that when we are restored, it will be too. Paul writes in Romans 8, verses 18 through 22, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, because of Him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. The world is yearning for the coming of Christ. It is at His return that all things will be changed. This gives us a view into the power that Christ possesses when He returns. Anything and everything in His presence will be turned to glory. His splendor, majesty, brilliance, and purity are so great that they can't help but sweep everything else along with it, bringing all things into the same glorious condition. When we think of glorification, it is no small consideration, no small thought of the imagination. It is so much more. It is not a limited, ethereal, disembodied, nebulous dream we entertain. It is a renewed cosmos, a new heavens, and a new earth. This is what we must think of as the context of the believer's glory, the believer's hope of glory. And so when we grasp this grand vision and understanding of glorification, and as we come to know the fullness of the glory of our union with Christ, and that in Him all shall be made alive, we will with joyful hope join with the yearning and the groaning and the longing of creation for the return of Christ. Our every breath will be cries of, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly and bring us life. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank You for assuring us that all who are in Christ, in Christ, shall surely be made alive. We thank You for the hope of resurrection that we have in this life and in death and unto glory. We thank You that when we are ultimately glorified and perfected and when the veil is finally lifted, that we shall see the Son for who He truly and really is, even as we have been made into what we 
are really meant to be. Grant us, O Lord, the faith to believe and to live according to this great hope. For we ask in the victorious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.